You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 102. Hello again, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you a short story, Late Arrivals on the Westbound Train. This is a piece of slipstream fiction, which I wrote for the chrislaster.org blog back in February 2015, before I'd even decided to start podcasting again. This is the first time it has appeared in audio. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, slipstream is a type of fantasy fiction that deliberately blurs the lines between fantasy and reality in order to create a feeling of cognitive dissonance. Some people describe it as the fiction of strangeness. This story is my first attempt at slipstream, and it's based on a real experience I had in the small town where I lived in southwest Montana. I hope you enjoy it. Late Arrivals on the Westbound Train By Chris Lester It's after 1 a.m., and the ghosts are awake. I'm walking westbound down Cavendish Street, from the residential neighborhood toward our few little blocks of downtown. It's blasted cold, and the wind is howling like the demons that used to plague this place, but I'm out here because the dog needs to go to the bathroom, and it takes her a good half a mile walk to get her bowels loose. God only knows why she won't go in our nice fenced-in yard, but... I guess when you're a 12-year-old retired ranch dog, you're bound to have picked up a few eccentricities. Whatever her reasons, a walk is the only thing that will do. And loving a senior animal means you do these things, because at this point you're just not going to change them. The dog trots down the pavement on her two short little legs, her back end bouncing with every step. With her plush double coat, she laughs at winter while I cinch up the mouth of my hood and wrap my scarf tighter around my face. If it were only the cold, it wouldn't be so bad. She and I have braved colder nights than this together. But the hood and the scarf cut off my peripheral vision, and that's not a welcome thing on nights like this. As I said, the ghosts are awake. Living people don't belong outside on nights like this, and everyone but me and the dog seems to know it. A visitor to our little town could be forgiven for being skeptical. We aren't nestled in some dark forest, or a lonely mountain valley, or some foggy cove on the coast of Maine. We're right out in the open, just a shallow dip in the Montana plains where they run up against the Absorcas and the Gallatin Range. Ours is a town of artists and writers, poets and musicians, and, most especially, fly fishermen. The biggest business in a 20-mile radius is an internet-based printing company. Look at our clean, orderly streets, our quaint little shops and galleries, and you'd think us perfectly domesticated. But the ghosts know better. They remember when this was a Wild West Railroad town, where the trains carried men and goods westbound from Minnesota and Wisconsin to the boom towns of Portland and Seattle. 
In those days it was a way station, not a destination, and rough men with money and time on their hands were eager to spend both of them when the trains stopped here for servicing. It was a place where the bars outnumbered the churches four to one, and the whorehouses were built like temples, because, after all, the only things such men worshipped were their appetites. How many of those hard-bitten men ended up shot, or stabbed, or face down in the gutters choking on their own vomit? I doubt anyone knows. I'm afraid to look into it, in case I might actually find an answer. This is a town that remembers its demons. On nights like tonight, they come back to visit. I cross Davis Street, near the county courthouse, and look warily up at the old Victorian on the corner. The house is in bad shape, and it always gives me a bad feeling when I pass it. I've never seen anyone inside, though sometimes, at night, I think I can see a faint green light through the curtains on the front window. I tell myself it's an illusion, just a glint on the storm windows from a distant streetlight. I still keep looking, every night, just to be sure. Tonight the front door is ajar, the hall beyond a black, empty mouth. At the instant I pass by, the door swings open wide. It should be creaking or groaning or something, but the motion is completely silent. I hurry past, casting repeated glances over my shoulder, not because I can see the thing that came out of the house, but because I want it to think that maybe I can, so it will think twice about following me. The dog trots on, her happy, bouncing gait unaltered. I know everybody talks about dogs being able to sense the supernatural, but mine seems oblivious to the thing that watched us from the house. Then again, maybe it's just that when you get to be her age, you find that ghosts don't impress you anymore. I reach the corner of Bell Street, now in downtown proper. It's time to start heading back toward home. I decide there's no way in hell I'm going back down Cavendish again, not with whatever was in that house awake and watching. I cut north one block to Parker Street, the main drag that runs along the north side of town next to the train tracks. It's the most brightly lit street in town, and the wide easements on either side give plenty of visibility in all directions. I have this impression, though I could be wrong, that ghosts don't like wide-open spaces. If I'm going to be followed, damn it, I'm going to make them at least a little nervous about doing it. Even here, on the busiest route through town, everything is shut down at this hour. A single car rolls by, the sound of the wheels on concrete unnerving me, and somehow that one interruption makes the lonely emptiness of the hour feel even worse. The sign at the old real estate office swings slowly on its rusty iron chains. Creak. 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 In the rail yard, something creaks and groans, though no train is passing through. I'm coming up on Franklin Street now, and the old Maynard Hotel is on my right. Once a lovely and well-furnished establishment, it eventually became a low-rent boarding house. And then, after the owner was murdered, a vermin-infested wreck. Broken windows sit gaping at ground level, 
revealing basement rooms cluttered with decades of old junk. Discarded furniture is piled up on the front porch and in the alley behind the building, surrounded by piles of shit left, I hope, only by stray dogs. Amazingly, people still live there, the sex offenders, the desperate, and the destitute, shattered souls that huddle under bedbug-infested blankets to get some respite from the broken furnace in the bitter Montana winters. The heir, they say, lives out in California somewhere, and has never seen the disaster his mother's place has become. As long as the rent keeps coming in, he doesn't seem to care. The city could condemn the place, of course, and probably should, but then they'd have to provide decent housing for the people there, or risk turning a bunch of desperate homeless people loose on their quiet, domesticated little town. Far more convenient to keep all the lost souls in one place. On the far side of Parker Street, I hear a loud clanging. I look across at a fenced-in yard next to an old warehouse that looks like an abandoned barn. It's hard to tell what the place is, or who it belongs to. There are the faded remnants of at least three signs painted on the side of the building, one atop another, so it's impossible to tell where one ends and the next begins. Whatever it was, it doesn't look like anyone's been there in fifty years. The chain-link fence is filled in with plastic brown slats that block the view of whatever lies beyond them. As I watch, the gates of the fence slam outward, as if struck from within by something huge and angry. The chains holding the gates shut creak and groan under the strain. For a moment, the gates ease back, and then they are slammed outward once more. It must be the wind, I tell myself. But the wind doesn't feel that strong. Tugging on the dog's leash, I pull her back into the darkness of the residential streets. In a few minutes, I find myself at the gate of my own small, comfortable house. I usher the dog inside, double and triple check the door to make sure it is secure and locked, and turn out the porch light, leaving the night to the ghosts. I slide into bed, wrap my arms around my sleeping lover, and pray to join her quickly. In the morning, I will look out at the sunlight streaming over the absorcas, and all of this will feel like a bad dream, a morbid fugue state brought on by an overactive imagination. I will blame the things I sensed and experienced on the wind and the darkness and the loneliness of the late hours. I will tell myself that I do not believe in ghosts. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. Franz Kafka said, A story should be an axe to break the frozen sea within us. I guess this is one situation in which a writer having an axe to grind is actually a good thing. Here's your weekly writing report. This week, I made an important decision about my writing. Ever since I finished podcasting Things Unseen, I've been trying to finish The Lost in the Least, while also putting out new fiction for this podcast. 
It hasn't worked. This book is so big, so complex, that it's going to take all my attention to bring it to the finish line. I have lots of other story ideas to work on, and I'm looking forward to writing them, but right now I have a year's worth of story content that I can't air on the podcast yet, because the book isn't finished. It doesn't make any sense for me to keep scrambling to produce new content for the show if it's holding me back from finishing the novel that I know a lot of you are waiting for. The other thing I've realized is that I need to make Urban Legends available for sale on Audible. Things Unseen is already selling copies, and Divine Intervention will be available soon, but it will make it a lot easier for new people to get into the series if the first book is available for purchase. Unfortunately, the raw recordings for the first season of the Metamore City podcast were lost when two of my old backup drives failed, and most of the old audio wasn't up to my current production standards anyway. So, to release Urban Legends on Audible, I need to re-record everything. And if past experience has taught me anything, it's that I can't produce an audiobook at the same time I'm doing a podcast unless I can use the same audio for both purposes. So, this week, I realized I can solve each of these problems with the other. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Metamore City podcast, so it's a natural time to look back at where we came from. For the rest of 2017, I'll be re-recording and releasing the stories from the Urban Legends collection, in preparation for the Audible version, which will be released at the end of the year. While these remastered episodes are airing, I'll be putting all my writing efforts into finishing The Lost and the Least editing it, preparing the book for publication, and releasing it. Then, when the last episode of Urban Legends airs, we'll be ready to move straight into podcasting The Lost and the Least. Along the way, I'll continue to bring you my author interview episodes, my weekly writing reports, and the feedback section. For my Patreon patrons, I'll keep doing my behind-the-episode commentaries, and I'll also share updates and sneak peeks with you as I move The Lost and the Least closer to completion. And for all those patrons who stick with me through the end of the year, you'll be the first to receive copies of the ebook version of The Lost and the Least. I know this isn't an ideal solution. I wish I could keep bringing you fresh new fiction while also finishing The Lost and the Least, but I can't. I wish I could record the Urban Legends audiobook at the same time I'm recording new stories for the show, but I can't do that either. I hope you'll all stick with me as we take this 10th anniversary trip down memory lane. And if you haven't heard these stories in a while, this is a great opportunity to refresh your memory, because a lot of the characters in these first few stories will make a reappearance in The Lost and the Least. And now, the feedback. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I hope that this finds you well. I did want to say first off, congratulations on this milestone. It's been a really great ride so far. I'm really glad you were able to get back into writing and then back into podcasting. It makes me very happy, especially because I had caught up on the older podcast. God, I think it was in 2014 that I started listening to Metamore City podcast, so I'm feeling uh, pretty nostalgic. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a great journey so far, and I've been glad to have you along for the ride. I did want to say uh, the Artax, well, Liam story, Fire in the Sky, was interesting. It was cool to have a story that was kind of all action for the most part, and it was also cool to see the beginning of Artax's relationship with Klepnos. It's hard not calling him um, Artax, and 
the but with the Liam that makes the connection to um Leah for um the other story where we learn about that part of his history. Well spotted. Yes, that is why he decided to call himself Leah. And a big part of the reason I wrote this story was because I wanted to see if I could tell an action-adventure story and keep it exciting. So far, people seem to like it. I hadn't originally planned for Klepnos to show up in this story, but he is the trickster, so I can't say it's all that surprising that he poked his nose into things here. But I thought it was, it was neat to see him when he was less confident and when he was, you know, much younger. I mean, he still had a good, a decent amount of confidence in certain things that he should have had the confidence in. So that was good. But that was a pretty uh, fucked up situation he was in. Indeed it was. This is stating the obvious a little, but war tends to put people in pretty fucked up situations. The Doolittle Raid, which inspired this story, is one of the craziest things I've ever heard of anyone attempting in war. Or at least, one of the craziest things that actually worked. I actually did have a question. I was wondering about the role of women in the military at that time, because I did notice, you know, when they say men, I know that's kind of a general way of saying things like, oh, men, blah, 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 in military stuff. But I was wondering about whether combat units included women and heck, even, you know, uh, androgynes when in, in, you know, their female version, whether that was a thing then and what current day things look like. I was just kind of curious about whether gender had a big role in military, you know, into what role someone could have in the military like it does have in our world, at least in the United States. Good question. I talked about this a bit in the Behind the Episode for number 98, which just came out earlier this week, so those of you who are Patreon patrons can go there and check it out. Briefly, though, this particular airship crew is definitely all men, but that doesn't necessarily mean that women and androgynes weren't active in other areas of the service. Captain Drowling comes from a conservative house with roots in the Midlands, and those houses tend to be less open-minded about gender roles than the older houses who lived through the battle days of the curse. At least, hopefully, this was something nice for you to listen to. And again, congrats on 100 episodes in two years. And I'm looking forward to as many more as you are able to give us. Take care. Wade from Texas wrote in with this message. Hey! I'm ashamed to say that I started listening to your work on Metamore City and The Raven in the Writing Desk rather late. I also listened to it a bit backwards. I started out with The Raven in the Writing Desk, getting caught up to when you released the first episode for Fire in the Sky. I badly wanted more, so I dug a bit deeper and realized there were two podcast feeds, one for The Raven in the Writing Desk and another for Metamore City. I just finished listening to everything that you have available online, and I have to say that your work is going to stay with me forever. I've been recommending your work to anybody I know that listens to podcasts, and even people that I know barely give podcasts a chance. Unquote. Thank you so much, Wade. And hey, no reason to be ashamed. I'm so grateful for every new listener who finds my work, especially when you tell other people about it. I'm glad to hear people are finding my work through the chrislester.org feed. Subscribers on that feed are still pretty scant. About 90% of my listeners are still listening on the old Metamore City feed, 
but as I release more work in non-metamore settings, I'm hoping that chrislester.org will become the portal for new listeners to engage with my stories. It's also nice to have a separate feed for the new show, so people can leave reviews for it on iTunes, separate from the old reviews for the Metamore City podcast. Thanks for writing in, and welcome aboard! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, you can make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.